Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Pencils down, kids. Pop the toys back on the shelf and gather around on the mat. It's show and tell time, and Matthew Dickerson has got good news, enough to take us all the way to lunch. Welcome to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, folks. We're glad you could make it, and welcome, of course, to Matthew Dickerson. Matt, I reckon as a five-year-old, you probably would have owned that floor at news time. I love the Cuisineers. Remember Cuisineers? Do they still yeah. do the Cuisineers? Oh, the Cuisineers. Oh, sorry, I call them Cuisineers. Cuisineers, anyway. oh, well, yeah, that might be right. But, you know, those, those little uh, centre cube blocks, the they're, white ones were the ones. And that's the, right. And you the had green the, were the two. Well, mate, green was three. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I remember those. So yeah. I love those. I, I suppose I've always had a fascination with mathematics. Maybe it started back with the Cuisineers, Cuisineers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to love those Yeah, in oh, no, same, same. And it'd play with those. Like on, We had a set at home, and I would play oh, with them at wow. home. That's going too days. far, James. That's going too far. <laughs> Maths nerd. <laughs> you had such special parents. <laughs> I feel so jealous now. <laughs> I wonder where you got yourself a box of Cuisineer uh, cubes. Anyway, uh, what's been on your mind um, this week? Taxi drivers. Of course. I do love my taxi drivers. And I had to think about it one day. I maybe thought about it too much, James, but I had to think ah. about what occupations have the best way to get a bit of an analysis across a broad cross-section of society to give you a bit of a snapshot of what people are thinking. Mm. And I thought probably hairdressers and taxi drivers. Yeah, of course. They come across, both of those groups of or those occupations come across lots of different people in a reasonable discussion time frame. So it's not like a mm. retail outlet at Coles, for example, oh, where you check might... Check out, you've yeah, only got 30 seconds. Correct. You're not really going to find out what people are thinking. So in a taxi, they're either having a conversation or, and this is what a lot of taxi drivers tell me, some people treat taxi drivers with disdain, with total disrespect. Can't believe it. And they sit there and pretend the taxi driver doesn't exist. So they have conversations in the taxi or on the phone as if the person's not even there. And so no. taxi drivers tell me all the time there's a whole range of things people say that they wouldn't dare possibly say in front of a person, but it's only ah. a taxi driver. <laughs> so they get some so it's re- like they're not even there. Exactly right. Oh, wow. So okay. they get some really good information. Oh, so I love wow. getting in taxis and I say – Tell me what's going on. Tell me what you're thinking about. Tell me who's going to win the next election. Tell me who's going to win the next cricket match, football match, whatever. Yeah. They've got really good information. So it's, forget surveys, forget Nielsen surveys and all the rest of it. You can find out everything that's happening in the world by listening to taxi drivers. So I had a great conversation. And, and again, you're in a taxi long enough. You can have a bit of a conversation. So I was in a taxi the other day. I had a great conversation, a, range, a whole range of things. But two things came out of that conversation. One was that he was actually listening to a radio station. I won't name any brands here so we don't get sued. Ah. But a radio station that maybe was a radio station that was right-wing-ish. Very conservative? Extremely conservative. Right, okay. (laughs) And talking about the in the days gone by, they might have talked about denial of climate change, for example, and that we should keep burning oil and coal as much as we can possibly get our hands on. And it's interesting because I don't listen to radio stations along those lines. Maybe I should every now and again. Mm. But... This particular taxi driver said that he's been listening to that a little bit lately and they've started to change their tune. They've started to say, okay, it's actually real. Mm. Climate change is real, which is a huge admission. And I said, fantastic. So what are they saying now? They said, well, they're now going along the lines of the transition 
the government's getting it wrong. The transition oh. is all wrong. Yes, we acknowledge that climate change is real. The transition is wrong. And I did say, so what's their solution? And the taxi driver laughed at me and said, that's not their job. They have a solution. Yeah, no, their no. job is to criticise yeah. everyone else's solution. But <laughs> the second thing, and this is where we've got a long way to go, I think, in solving lots of problems, in transition, in changing over from coal-fired power to renewables, changing over to EVs, etc. I said to this taxi driver, why aren't you driving an EV? And his answer was, and this is, I'm not having a go at this taxi driver, but this is part of the problem we have, the ignorance out there in the general market. He said, well, an EV would be no good for me at all. He said, sometimes I might drive 10, maybe 12 hours in a shift. And I said, well, it doesn't matter how long you drive, how many kilometres do you do? He said, some shifts I might do up to 200 kilometres. So an EV would be no good for me whatsoever because you couldn't possibly do 200 kilometres in an EV. And that's the sort of ignorance. And again, I'm not. It sounds like that's a very harsh word, but it's not meant. To, it's not stupidity. I don't equate ignorance with stupidity. Oh, are we talking about a city taxi driver as well? City taxi driver. Because when you're sitting at the lights, you're not using any battery at all. And this is where he thought the 12 hours was the problem, yeah. not the 200 kilometres being the problem. Now, this particular taxi he was driving. Some taxi drivers rent it from other people, or they might have their own taxi they rent to other people. It might go 24 hours a day. This it was his taxi. He drove it for about 12 hours a shift and then went home and parked because he doesn't like having other people drive it. He's had that happen before and they mm. damage it or don't treat it well. So it's sitting idle for 12 hours. Hmm, I reckon you could charge it up in that 12 hours. <laughs> it's then being driven for 12 yeah, hours of about yeah. 200 kilometres. So I kind of went through a bit oh, of the look, process and those, there. And those long hours sitting in the taxi rank at the airport or whatever waiting for stuff to happen, um, you've got a big screen there that you can be watching <laughs> Netflix or YouTube or whatever on. Yeah, I was actually thinking the other way. I was thinking the same thing, <laughs> but I was thinking that in summer you've got the engine running to try and cool you down, but yeah. I like the way you're thinking as well. <laughs> so we've got a long way to go, I think, in, in solving that ignorance problem. Mm. And just educating people around that because for a taxi driver, 200 kilometres a day would be perfect. Now, I did say to him, yeah. what's your number one expense? And, of course, the answer to that is fuel. So he spends the number one expense he has for running his business, his taxi business, mm. is fuel. Take that away. Take that part of the equation away. Suddenly, you're in a much better situation. His number two expense is maintenance. Mm. Again, you reduce that dramatically in an EV. And number three expense is he normally sells that taxi at the end of a time frame for basically nothing. So depreciation on that taxi. Mm. I still think you'd be able to run your EV taxi for hundreds of thousands of kilometres and still get some resale yeah. value back on it. Anyway, we're getting there slowly. We've talked about last week where I hired an EV. I talked about it before where you can actually get some taxi companies that specialise in EVs only. We're getting there slowly. Long way to go at this stage. But yeah. that ignorance, that lack of education, I think a government any government can play a huge part in that process. Turn that around. Mm. Yeah. All right, on to our first story. Are you a bit of an overthinker? Well, there may just be a job for you as a CEO at Apple. You see, some of the chiefs in the comfy chairs feel that it's time to shake things up. And when I say shake things up, I mean someone has decided that the trigger phrase, hey Siri, should be shortened to just plain Siri. Now, I've probably just set off everyone's series uh, uh, if you're listening to this around your house. And we're going to have a bit of fun with that today, folks. Matt, it sounds like someone at the Apple boardroom has just earned themselves a hefty pay rise. Well, it is interesting because Apple used to be thought of as absolutely a pioneer, a leader. But this is another scenario, I believe, where Apple seems to be following the crowd. And just so we're going to annoy as many listeners as possible <laughs> <Here> today, <laughs> you used to have to say, hey, Alexa, but now you can just say Alexa. So that's for anyone that's using an Amazon assistant, for example. That's Alexa, 
Alexa, how many times can we say Alexa? What's the weather like, Alexa? <laughs> What's the best podcast to listen to for tech, Alexa? <laughs> Actually, you've got to do it the other way around. You've got to say yeah, Alexa, Alexa first. first. Sorry, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, so I was trying to be nice to those listeners out there. Google is still at the stage where their assistant has to be OK Google or Hey Google. Hey Google. OK Google. So that's got to take just care of the Google <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and not that anyone out there would have it anymore, but back in the old days when Microsoft had, had Cortana, mm. it used to be Hey Cortana, but then they changed it to Cortana. Apple says, why do we need to have Hey Siri when we could just shorten that to Siri? Because throwing that hay in the front is a big effort and, you know, you don't want to blow a vocal cord. <laughs> it does sound like a first world problem, doesn't it? <laughs> but I think they're responding to the fact that Alexa is answerable with one word, whereas Siri needs hey Siri to be able to answer that. crucial to Absolutely the success right. of your... Uh, now, it sounds simple enough for you and I. If someone said you could say, hey, Siri, or Siri, I just want to count how many times we can say, hey, Siri. Ah. <laughs> if someone said, hey, Siri, or Siri, we as humans can say, we know what's going on there. We know that you mean the same thing both times. For Apple and their execs, so someone sitting around the boardroom, as you said, kicking back, feet up on the bench and said, you know what? I'm a bit sick of saying this hey word. Let's get rid of that. The pro engineers in the AI department went, oh, I oh know, Jimmy said, we've got to go and do this. Let's go and now work it out. Because you obviously don't want people in normal conversation to be chatting away. And mm. next thing you know, your watch or your phone answers. And I've had that. I'm sure most people have had that with whatever assistance they use. I've been doing radio interviews and I've actually made the mistake of saying something with A-Siri and <laughs> suddenly my watch site's answering my question on radio. <laughs> so it's all a bit embarrassing. But that's the thing. They're going to have to reprogram the whole way of thinking so they can get to the stage where it's answerable in one word rather than two words. And that gives it more chance to make a mistake because mm. when you're listening out for three syllables mm. with a gap between two, then, or gap between the first and the second syllable, then it's one set of programming. And it's probably unlikely you're going to, get, going to get a lot of other examples of those series of words or syllables being said. When you narrow it down to two syllables without a gap, there are other things that you might be able to come up with. Now, I do feel sorry for people out there who have the name of Alexa, for mm, example, yeah, because sure. how could you have a conversation? Let's say your daughter was Alexa. Alexa, good to see you this morning. And the next <laughs> thing you know, your Amazon assistant starts telling you things. Not many people out there named Google that I know, so probably not such a big issue with Google assistants. And Siri, mm, mm. I don't know many names that sound like Siri, but maybe the old Yahoo Sirius, or no, the jokes out of flying high. Surely uh -huh. you can't be serious. So <laughs> if someone said Sirius, that might be enough for... Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> that's right. That's the one. It surely might be enough for someone to actually get to the stage where it's you're saying the word serious and the Siri in that, because there's no hay in front, triggers it and then it starts trying to answer the mm. us out of the serious out mm. of there. I'm imagining these things. I'm making it up as I go here. Well, but just, it does create a challenge. In your exp explanation there, you've just explained why none of these things are called Anne or Tom <laughs> or Jim because that single syllable would be just a nightmare, wouldn't it? A single syllable. that sounds a little bit like a name. Well, not even a name. A single syllable that might be used in other words. Other words, But yeah. a single syllable that might be someone else's name We've or a common these name. these things chime in with. I cannot help you right now. Yeah. I cannot understand your request. That's right. So imagine if it was a common name like a John or a Mary, yeah. any of those Tom. So those common names, that would be a complete disaster. <laughs> and you'd be wanting to sue <laughs> Apple or Google or Amazon for this create disaster. And this disaster sell created. half a dozen anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, keep an ear out for that. There will be some changes coming. They will reprogram the AI. It's probably not going to be rolled out to next year sometime, but it will happen at some stage in the near future. 
Is there nothing a 3D printer cannot do? Certainly, printing prosthetic arms, hands and legs is nothing short of a modern-day wonder, but nevertheless, uh, it's all getting a little bit old hat now. But anyone who's had knee surgery will tell you that the knee joint is a biological marvel, and fixing them is tricky to say the least. It has to carry almost the entire body weight, plus some more sometimes, but yet remain flexible and strong even when it's in its weakest position, that is, when it's bent, of course. So once the joint fails and needs repair, things are never quite the same again, even after surgery. But Matt, things are on the up, thanks to 3D printing. Is there nothing, as you say, is there nothing it's we can't amazing. do with 3D it's printing? It's a revolution it is to fantastic. the world. Yeah. Now, I know some friends of mine that have had new knees put in, and the advice out there I'd give to everyone is apparently if you're going to have a knee done, get both done. Apparently, it's the most painful thing in oh. the world. And some males, and apologies to females out there, say it's worse than childbirth without having <laughs> known what childbirth was like. But they say it's very painful. Yeah, and the right. problem is when people, and I've got one friend in particular who has had one knee done, and that knee's fantastic now, but he said it was so painful. His other knee, which was just as bad, he's not going to get done because he doesn't want to put it with the oh, pain. So yeah. getting two done at the same time is the trick. The big problem at the moment, though, is a surgeon has a process where they open up your knee and it's pretty gory if you go and look at pictures of it mm. and they replace the knee, chop off some bits of your femur. It's such a complex joint as well because oh. it's got such an enormous job to do. And it just seems a bit overly simplistic, doesn't it? A couple of bits there, just held yeah. together a bit of cartilage and that'll yeah. all be okay. It's not like a, a hip joint that can you know go into a ball and socket. It seems like a almost too simplistic and just a few bits of cartilage holding the whole thing together. Yeah. But the problem is that at the moment what they do is they open up your knee, they chop off a bit of your, your bottom part of your femur, whack in another bit in there and make it all come together. But the issue is they've normally got a few different sizes sitting on a desk or a table in the surgery mm. and they pull it out, the old one, they go, oh, it looks like uh, size three. No, no, James looks like about a size four. Right, we'll whack that wow. one in there. But if you happen to be a size three and a half or a four and a half, then about 20% of knee operations, people report their knee isn't feeling right. And that's because the knee size just wasn't quite what it was oh, before. So it's not bad. They've got a few different sizes there. And yeah. in general, obviously 80% of people have a good experience out of it. But the next thing that surgeons have said is, well, why don't we just print a new one for them? Sounds pretty easy. So what they're doing now is they're doing a full CT scan, 3D CT scan of your existing knee. Then they're seeing that off to America. There's a company there that will 3D print a new knee for you, exactly the same as your old one, except obviously as it was new rather than as a, the worn out version of it. Then they freight it to Australia, air freight it to Australia, so you've got it very quickly. Then they go and do the surgery. They don't have to go and check out size three, size four knees. They just whack in the one. They've got a Matthew Dickerson size. Exactly right. Knee. And so the outcome from this, what they're finding is a whole range of good outcomes. First of all, it feels right. When you wake up from surgery, yes, it's painful. But as you get over that, the knee feels right because it is. It's a replica of your knee. Mm. They're finding the recovery times are much better. They're finding the amount of time people need with physio is much better. They're actually finding the time in surgery, therefore the cost of surgery. Obviously, surgeons make a little bit of money. And if they can do one or two more surgeries a day because they're not fiddling around checking knee sizes against the variety of knee size options they've got, when they know they've got the right size to go straight in, they can just pull out the old one, put in the new one, 
and away they go. Now, I do sound like I'm trivialising a little bit there. There's a little bit more than whack out the old one and whack in the new one. It's a slightly more complicated but process. But we're getting closer to that stage where we just pop in a new knee for you. That's right. I'll just duck into... At lunchtime. And that's right. My, <laughs> my mate just up the road doesn't. I'll get a new one and, and be back this afternoon to play a bit of basketball. So that's where we're headed. But again, this whole concept of 3D printing body parts... Mm. And we've tried, we've talked about it before, we've tried some of the more active body parts. A knee is a little bit less active than, say, a heart. Mm. We haven't really got there with 3D printing some of those parts. That we've been trying on that, but certainly 3D printing, for example, ears. We've had people have some 3D printing of, of the actual outside of the ear, so you can look a bit more normal if something's happened to your ear. Maybe mm. you're a rugby player or something. Ah. Um, but bones, as, as we talked about here with knees. So we are 3D printing various bits and pieces of our body and doing it more successfully, doing it cheaper and better outcomes for the patient. So it does sound fantastic. So that's happening in Australia now. There's only or there's fewer than 20 surgeons around this country that are actually doing this at the moment, 20 knee surgeons out there. And it's amazing. I actually looked up how many knee joint replacements there are. There are more, last year there were more than 62,500 knee replacements. So that yeah. blew me away. I, in my mind, knows someone who's had a knee replacement. Yeah, in my mind I was thinking in the thousands, but I'd like to actually have data to validate or to, to make me completely wrong, but 62,500 seems like a lot. Yeah. Most of those, or all of those at this stage, would have been done in that way where they just pick a size. But now, starting to move that way. So if you better have a knee replacement done, I'd say to your surgeon, I want a 3D print yeah, on one thing, so I want it to be the same as this. From 3D printing to another modern marvel, that being the wonder of stem cells. These tiny miracles of almost endless biological possibility are featuring more and more in mainstream media, and they're forcing people to define their thinking about what they are, re- what they feel is reasonable to accept, and what's a bridge too far. Perhaps you've already found your moral grounding on the subject of lab meat, a, a burger patty made from real beef muscle cells, but grown inside a petri dish, and not ever being having been inside an animal. Well then. How would you feel about receiving a blood transfusion using blood that had never been inside a human previously, made from stem cells in a laboratory? Matt, I can see umpteen benefits to lab-grown blood, and while I know this is not going to sit well with some, I cannot hide my wholehearted approval for this revolution. Maybe it sits better with some, because I was thinking about it. And we've talked about lab-grown meat, as you mentioned there, and lab-grown meat seems a bit strange for people because we've been used to for all the life of humans hunting animals Mm. and killing them and eating animals and that seemed like the way we have evolved and there's a lack of trust for something that has been grown in a petri dish correct but this is the opposite if someone said to me let's take some blood out of another human and put it in you I'd kind of think, oh, that seems a bit <laughs> icky in some way, shape, or form. But we've become accustomed to it because it saves lives. That's and, right. And that's, that's what it does. Exactly and when right. people say you've got to get a blood transfusion, you just go, okay, that's right. give it to me. Not, some people do question it, but not many people question that. And even donating blood, most people that I know go and donate blood from time to time because we feel like we're doing something good for society and helping mm. some other humans out. And who knows, one day we might need a blood transfusion, we might need a car accident or whatever it might be. But... If someone had said to me in the first place, you've got the choice of some lab-grown blood or some blood out of another human, 
I'd probably take the lab-grown blood. I think mm. in some way, shape or form, that feels a little bit less icky than taking it out of someone else and yeah. giving it to me. And maybe I'm thinking of some horror movies where people do strange things with blood or, blood or do rituals with blood or something. So maybe that has put me <laughs> off a little bit. But, <laughs> but I think this concept is fantastic. One of the things they're really trying to achieve out of this, it's not all about getting enough blood because sometimes you do hear well, call-outs for blood. the supply is sometimes short, right? Yeah, that's right. And sometimes there'll be... A holiday season coming up, and unfortunately we know there'll be more car accidents, so sometimes there is a call out for more blood. This isn't necessarily about solving that particular problem. This is more about solving the problem where some patients need regular transfusions of blood for whatever disease they might have, where they need regular transfusions. Lab-grown cells are actually lasting longer no. than standard blood transfusions. So that's yeah. really interesting as well. That's interesting. I wonder if that has something to do with a younger cell being stem cells. Well, I think it's you've got a fresh cell, I think, yeah. to work with. So when you're taking blood out of someone, you're taking that blood out. It's then being stored for yeah. a period of time, transported yeah, somewhere else. Yep. And then finally, when it gets into another person, I don't know how long it's been or how old it's been out of yeah. someone's body, but it's been a period of time. And then obviously... Well, I reckon it's, it's about three months for you to regenerate your blood completely. So, you're, yeah, your liver's constantly um, yeah, processing those into you know, little platelets and things like that and breaking down old blood cells. Yeah, and so I don't yeah. know how long it can survive out of the body in that process to be able to be used in a blood transfusion, but obviously it's not forever. But then when that blood is put into someone else, obviously if you're not able to recreate blood or you need mm. that blood transfusion for another reason, then that blood eventually gets to the stage where they need to keep putting new blood in from someone else. But if you can do it in the lab, that blood obviously is better. It's newer, it's fresher, if yeah. you like. It's then be able to be able to put in and last longer. So you need fewer transfusions. So if that's part of your head medical position that you're in, the health that you've got for whatever reason, that you've got to go and visit somewhere to get a blood transfusion on a regular basis. It might be weekly, monthly, whatever it might be. If you can extend that time frame, well, that's better for your quality of life, but also it's got to be better from a medical services perspective where you need to treat those patients less often. Mm. So this is really interesting. They're not using it completely at the moment, so they haven't flicked the switch and now that's it. All lab-grown blood is being used in those sort of ongoing situations. At the moment, they're only using small amounts. They're using maybe 10 milliliters when they're putting into people just to test that out and do some further testing on it. Hmm. But they're able to grow this. I'm not sure if growing is the right word, but they're, they're able to produce this blood reasonably efficiently without too much expense, and they just need to ramp up the volume once they're convinced it's right. But this is being used right now as we speak in some people, more in a trial situation, but I can see a huge future here for oh, look, this. And I, c I can imagine that there's uh, other issues there as well. For example, um, the risk of in infection is gone, I assume. Um, so you're unlikely to get infection. And the other one is that there are some blood groups that are really hard to match. And O negatives, sorry out there, folks, um, your blood's great to go into anyone else's, but you can only receive blood from other O negative people. So if there's a shortage... We can tailor make that blood for you, and um, and you're right to go. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about that, but there are some blood types that, as you say, are a bit harder to get. So maybe with this type of transfusion, you remove that problem altogether. So that's interesting. And some people, there are some patients that are in particular health situations that will develop antibodies against some other people's blood. So that can mm. be a bit of an issue as well. So a whole range of issues there, yeah. I think, may well be solved by this. Yeah, awesome. Ever been on a bridge that was about to collapse? Me neither. 
But the good news is you'll never have to risk it ever again, all thanks to a new smartphone app that'll be available to determine the structural integrity of bridges. Now, this story is probably going to excite civil engineers more than it will Joe Average, but you never know, folks. Just Google the Tacoma Narrows Bridge Collapse and you may end up with a solid dose of bridge phobia, Matt. Have you ever seen that video? <laughs> yes, it's very scary, isn't it? Yeah. And I was just on a bridge recently that did collapse, the Tasman Bridge across the Derwent River that collapsed way back in about 1976, I think yeah, that one right. was, when the freighter ran into one of the piers. Oh, of and, course. Yeah, and then yeah that'll bring down. a bridge collapse. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and this then. particular solution that we're going to talk about today won't help in that situation. No, it? no it won't stop <laughs> boats from crashing into you. No, that's right, and stop it from falling down on that. Actually, one of the endearing images from that particular one was the two cars that screeched to a halt and one stopped right on the edge of the bridge, but the other one, it was balanced on the mm. transmission of the car. It was an old hold and just balanced on the transmission and there was a husband and wife in there and they told the story afterwards that the wife said, stop, there's no bridge there. And the husband said, what do you mean? And anyway, he just jumped on the brakes and did what his wife told him to do, luckily. luckily but yeah. they, they had to get out the back doors because he said he opened the front door and looked down and all he could see was blackness it's like blowing. a scene out of a Superman movie or oh, something. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right, yeah. Imagine, imagine climbing out the back door because you couldn't go out the front door because there's nothing and making sure the weight didn't transfer too far yeah, forward. Yeah. Anyway, so this wouldn't help this particular problem, but I want to talk about accelerometers in phones. The good old commercial piezoelectronic, uh, sorry, electric accelerometer was developed way back in 1943 and it was developed, interestingly enough, mainly for checking vibrations on things like bridges because they mm. wanted to do some ongoing maintenance on bridges, check what was happening on a bridge, and they did them in other things like aircraft as well. They wanted to check some vibrations. So that sort of accelerometer is really good for detecting how fast something is accelerating, and they do it with a very small piece of technology, and they do it pretty accurately. Mm. Most phones and most smartphones definitely would have that sort of accelerometer. Piezoelectrics uh, is a big thing in um, ultrasound, sonography. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. One of the things that I did see back in about 2005, it was Samsung released a phone, an SCH310, and it was one of the first phones that I'm aware of that had an accelerometer in it, and it was used for really important things like you could trace out a number in the air to ring that number. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to ring 555, you just traced out a 5 and a 5 and a 5 in the air, and they were showing off the fact that this had an accelerometer in the phone itself, mm. and it could detect how fast you're accelerating the phone in different directions. Not really an essential yeah. service yeah. <laughs> in a phone, but I think they were trying to come up with something gimmicky, something really important to be able to show people and the say, hook. look at this great technology. That's exactly right. You could draw an O in the air or an X in the air and the phone would say out loud, yes or no. So I can imagine lots of kids, the parents come in and say, time to do the dishwashing and they just get their phone out and do a big X and <laughs> <laughs> this loud no comes out. Oh, sorry, my phone said I can't do it. Swat behind the ear. <laughs> so we don't use accelerometers so much for drawing things in the air with our phones, but we do use them for, well, in combination with a, a gyroscope, you actually use that to work out whether your phone is vertical or horizontal, so portrait or landscape mode, if you like. So they're used for things like that in a, in a modern phone. And also, you've seen some modern smartphones that do a crash detection. Obviously, that's detecting how many Gs mm. you've just experienced. If it's a certain number of Gs, it says, hey, I think this phone's just been in a crash. Let's ring emergency services. So that's all great. But what I love, and we've talked about this before, I love how someone designs a piece of equipment to do one thing, and it is used for that, and then someone else uses it for something else, and then it goes through various mind and various ideas and next thing you know someone comes up with an idea that's just so so far out of left field exactly right yeah so some researchers actually thought about this a bit and said 
you know, those smartphone accelerometers are pretty sensitive. We could actually use those to detect how much vibration we're getting on a bridge and then detect the health of that bridge because most bridges have engineers that come along and do regular maintenance. They check various wear on joints or various wear on the bridge overall. Is it vibrating too much or sinking too much when traffic's on it or wind forces, Mm. all those sorts of things. So they actually strapped or, or mounted a smartphone in a car and drove over a few bridges a number of times. Compared the results they got from that with the actual results they had with normal processes they had in place, with normal fixed accelerometers on the bridges, with normal inspections of various things, and they found that they could predict incredibly accurately the state of health of the bridge. So you think, well, that's pretty good. Mount a few of these phones in some of the cars, and then you can just drive around the country and check the health of these bridges. But they then went a step further. They said, why go and do all that? There's lots of people out there with smartphones now. How can we use the crowd? So they went to Uber uh-huh. and they said, you've got drivers that have got smartphones. They're doing lots of trips over lots of areas. We know where they are with the GPS on the phone. And with the accelerometer, we can check the actual vibrations, the modal frequencies of these vibrations to check the health of a bridge. So they then mounted or installed an app on lots of Uber drivers' smartphones and then let them drive around, and with all of the extra data, they compared that to the fixed scenario of their known, their, their you know, one with a, a mounted smartphone in a car, and they compared all the results, and they found that the accuracy of all the Uber drivers was within 3% of when they had it in a mounted situation, because some Uber drivers might have it in their pocket. Mm. It's hard to predict how well it's mounted to the car. They don't know the suspension status of that car, all these sorts of things, but they got it within 3% accuracy. And 3%? Is scientifically acceptable. Well, the next thing from that is then what they want to do is set up a program where they will just use, whether it be Uber drivers, whether it be mail contractors in Australia, might be Australia Post, for example, whatever large group of people that they know are going to be driving over bridges on a regular basis, feed all that data back in. You've got this huge data set to work with and you can monitor the health of those bridges with extreme accuracy. And then when it gets to a certain state, you can then go and do normal monitoring or send in people to do some physical inspections. Their estimations from this is that older bridges could have their maintenance periods extended by two years. So again, that saves money, obviously, and gives you a safer outcome because if something deteriorates faster than you expected, then Mm. you'll know about it as well. Mm. But even with new bridges, they believe they extend the maintenance period out by 15 years because they've got all this data. Now, what I really like about this is way back in 1943, the main reason that piezoelectric accelerometer was designed was for bridges jump forward 80 years and it's now going to be used for bridges but in a completely different way in a (laughs) smartphone that never had bridges in mind when an accelerometer was put in that particular smartphone or in smartphones in general but it's going to again be used to monitor the health of bridges via a completely different mechanism so i love that idea that we've just progressed down that path by going through so many different steps along the way you just can't pick it Is yours a house of smart gadgets? Do you have any smart gadgets that aren't compatible with your other smart gadgets? They're a great idea. They take take a bit of getting used to, just ask my parents, but there's a coordination that needs to happen too if you want things to run smoothly, that, that is. Until now, and matter has the answer that you've been waiting for. And when I say matter, I'm not giving you a nickname, Matt. <laughs> matter is a company that have decided to coordinate our smart gadgets. 
this is the real problem that we have. There are so many different devices out there that we can use to make our home smarter, but everyone's got the answer. Mm. And it's a bit like the old VHS versus beta days, two competing companies, two different technologies, and market forces decided who the winner was. The problem we've got at the moment is we've got some pretty significant market forces out here. We've got companies like Apple, like Amazon, like Google, three fairly large technology companies. And I'm not talking about just those. There are lots of other companies out there as well. But when you get some of these titans of the tech industry, they all believe that their solution or their range of solutions Mm. is the one. And I now look at some of these different solutions and I I must admit, I, I don't love to admit it, but I've had a bit of the... Confusion around choice stagnating my advancement. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's some sexy term for it, but I look at some of the smart devices and go, gee, that's great. Oh, but I've got some of these other smart devices already, and that's not going to work with that. And I like that one there, but I'm not going to change this other one. Mm. So I just don't make just, the purchase. Yeah. So I stagnate in some of these advancement. And, and I'm very fortunate where I live. I've basically created my house as a smart home 23 years ago when I built it using a proprietary company that allows other things to talk to it. So I'm in a slightly better situation than most because I have got a a cupboard full of relays that control all sorts of things in my house. It's fantastic. But still, some of the things I want to add on to it don't talk to that. Where Matter is going is Matter is a, you're quite right, is a company, an organization that has said, we're going to solve this problem. You can have all your different devices from all the different companies and we're going to lay a protocol over the top of all that where matter will be the thing that communicates with all these other devices. So the humans will communicate with matter-compatible devices. Matter will do the grunt work. Matter will do all the problem-solving. Correct. And then it will say, if I've got to talk to Google in the way they want to talk and Amazon the way they want to talk, etc., I'll take care of that part. So it means that you as the consumer can just buy whatever products you want out there in the market. You look for the little matter logo on there and they'll all talk to each other. Now, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> in a perfect world. Yeah, yeah. So, matter, so you're going to tell us now that we're not in that ideal situation. Mm, uh, okay. <laughs> getting there. So Matter had a launch event and they showcased this wonderful process of speed and interoperability with all these different devices of all the ones that are compatible at this stage. At this stage. But that means yeah. there's still a lot out there that aren't compatible. And when a new player comes in on the market as well. Yeah. Now, the interesting part here That's is, Matter's problem. That's Matter's problem, but it was also the other companies that have got those products. What they're trying to do quite cleverly is they're trying to say, we're not competing against the Google products or the Amazon products. We're actually making it easier for people to buy your products. If it was a direct competitor, if they said, by the way, we've got a bunch of our own products as well, Mm. I think they'd find it very difficult to get agreement from those other companies. But when they're saying, we're going to make it easier for you to sell your products by having this overlay, then that's going to make it, I think, a bit better. But at this stage... Not every product out there, not every company is convinced and they haven't all got Matter-compatible devices. I wonder whether Matter is the right word. Does it really matter? I just, I just <laughs> excuse the pun, but I, I do, as I was talking, I, went, I wonder if that's just going to confuse people with Matter or whether it, it is a great term to actually use. But ignore that for the moment. That's just me that's having a random thought. another time. <laughs> that is. But the idea is brilliant. The idea is fantastic. Let's get all these different devices talking amongst each other. And I have made decisions on purchases that I've made based on other products I've got when I think, oh, there's another product out there that's better, but do I want to have two, three, four, five different apps on my phone to control different devices Mm. around my home or do I want one? And that's where ultimately it will go. You'll have one matter app. You'll have all the devices from whatever company. You pick whatever ones you want and they'll all talk together 
beautifully in a wonderful world and probably sing kumbaya on a regular basis. And it allows the flexibility for those companies to behave as they choose and make their products as they choose without the limits of trying to fit another protocol. Uh, you can let matter solve that problem, hopefully. Well, that, and that is the idea. Let matter solve the problem, but you still want those companies in there as part of the conversation, and yeah. that's going to be the intriguing part. Keep an ear out for this. I believe it's the way to go forward, just as long as the, the big companies come along and play ball as well. Mm. Material science. Students often come to me with questions about how to get rich enough in science. Let's face it, there just aren't that many wealthy scientists out there. Some have attained notoriety, but the rich ones would probably fit into a cosy little cocktail party. But then there's material science, developing the new stuff that people are going to need, that everyone's going to need. Then all you have to do is convince people that they need it. Now, here's let me, let me get to the crunch here. No one likes a puncture. And Matt, we now have a new sealant which could be the goods to make punctures a memory, dare I say, and perhaps a material scientist out there very, very rich. Absolutely someone out there very, very rich if this comes off. And it is interesting that you're getting so many car manufacturers out there now finally not having spare tyres in their cars. Now, some people shudder at the thought of no spare tyres in their car. And I do some critical thinking talks to students normally around the, the concept of thinking critically about things rather than just doing what you've always done. And yeah. I use the example of a spare tyre in a car, roll off a bunch of stats around how many times you have problems with your car related to battery or fuel in the old days when people had petrol in their cars mm. or tyres. And replacing a tyre, having a spare tyre a need for that is very low down the list. But well, we still have it on and there. And I wonder, yeah, how many people have bought a car, used the car for uh, the length of its life, five, six, seven, ten years, 15 years, whatever, and never replaced a tyre? And that's where finally manufacturers are getting to. They're saying, why are we carrying that extra weight? That reduces the efficiency of our car, takes up a fair bit of space in terms of trunk or boot space or even frunk space. So why bother about having that? So car manufacturers are doing that. About a third now of new cars that are coming out don't have a spare tyre. Then it just makes some people feel uneasy. Mm. So then you think, what do you do next? Do you have the little squirty stuff you put in the tyre if you get a flat and that pumps it up and seals the tyre. That doesn't seem to work that well. Mm. Do you have run flats? Now, the problem with run flats is they build the structure of the tyre differently, so the sidewalls are a bit stronger, so you can actually keep running when the tyre's flat. Obviously, go a bit slower. It doesn't handle as well, but it will get you to a destination at a slower speed. But they compromise then on the ability for the tyre to do one of the wonderful things that it does do, and that's soak up some of those little bumps when you make that sidewall stiffer. So one of the solutions that manufacturers are coming up with now is a tyre sealant, but not a normal tyre sealant. This is using silicon as a tyre sealant. Now, silicon is a lot better than your normal old-fashioned tyre sealants for a number of reasons. One of the things that you find in push bikes, for example, for a number of years I've ridden my mountain bikes and I've had a sealant in the tyres, so that as I ride along, run over some cat heads, which you do during Sometimes summer. Sometimes do. Yep. yep, that's right. And you'll just hear the little... As a bit of air comes out and then the sealant fills that in. But I'm carrying a lot of extra weight in my tyres to do that, which I'm okay with because I don't really don't want to puncture. And you, that's sloshing around inside the tyre. So it's actually changing the dynamics of the tyre a little bit. Now, when I'm doing my miserable little 20 kilometres an hour on my mountain bike, it's probably not that big a deal. If I'm doing 180 kilometres an hour on autobahn, mm. that sloshing around of that liquid in the tyres probably has a bit more of an impact on the handling. So they don't like leaving that sort of liquid inside a tyre. But what they're starting to look at now is coating the inside of tyres 
with a silicon. And if you do get a puncture, that silicon then can fill that in just like a sealant would do, but without having a liquid sloshing around on the tyre. Sounds fascinating yeah, right. in terms of so, the technology. So, so this fluid is within the rubber of the tyre rather than within the tube of the tyre. Well, it sounds like these are all tubeless tyres we're talking about, obviously. Yeah, yeah, in, right. In terms yeah. Sorry, of my the, apologies. The mountain bike tyres I run are tubeless and obviously car tyres are all tubeless. So it actually sits inside the layer of the tyre. Yeah, yeah, within the air space, though. Yeah, but it's not say, a yeah. liquid that sloshes around. It's actually a coating on the inside of the tyre. Early days yet, but the result so far is that you get a nail in your tyre, it'll seal it up, get a screw in your tyre, which is the sort of things you normally get when you get a puncher. It normally is something like that, a screw or a nail that's on the road and you run that over. You have a major issue. It doesn't matter whether you've got sealant or run flats. You hit a major pothole and it splits the side of your tyre. Well, all bets are off anyway. Mm. This is really trying to solve those small problems that you have. And the other great thing that you find with modern cars is that many of them have tyre pressure warnings or they actually give you the tyre pressure you've got in all your tyres at any given point in time. Mm. So if you do get that slow leak, so for example, if you get a nail and the silicon fills it but it's actually let a little bit out before it's managed to seal it, then you'll have a warning come up on your dash and say, you're meant to be running 35 PSI, this tyre's now running 30 PSI, have a look at that and you put some more air in it and a week later the same thing happens, you go, well, maybe it didn't seal it properly, maybe mm. it didn't go and get it looked at or maybe it did seal it and it's all okay and away you go. It might be doing car tyre repair uh, businesses out of business with this sort of work but I'm sure there's enough expense in these extra tyres that they'll make it up somewhere else along the way But but it is interesting and again it's talking about we think tyres are fairly advanced we think back in the 1940s I think it was Michelin came up with the steel belted radial and that, in my opinion, was the last major change yeah. that we've seen in tyres. That was a huge breakthrough, that steel-belted radial from Michelin. But you've still got advancement, you've still got technology changing in tyres. We even talk about airless tyres, where the structure of the tyre takes care of the tyre that the, is holding the weight of the car, if you like, yeah. rather than air holding the weight of the car. So there's still some development happening, but silicon inside there, I think, is another really interesting development that we'll see. Sport at the highest level requires the latest tech in order to optimise the performance of its players. No secrets there. Well, in a clever marketing move, Manchester City is offering its state-of-the-art wearable tech to amateur players, the Tuesday night superstars, who can now get the sort of insight and feedback for fine-tuning their gameplay that only the pros have had access to in the past. Matt, this sort of tech is not only very cool... It may just give me the insight I need to hone my game and be scouted at last. <laughs> finally, finally. All these years you've been waiting. Actually, that's a really good point. I'll come to that. I think they could use that data, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. That's a great idea. <laughs> you often see sporting teams with some GPS devices in the, the small of their back. Uh, yeah. you know, not small of the back, just between the shoulder blades. Yeah, right. And you'll see that where they're tracking the players. And even some telecasts will show you who's been the fastest runner that night and who's done the most run time or jog time. Yeah, and they'll show you a map of where they've covered on yeah. the field. In Aussie Rules, they do, they're a classic for this sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, and actually my wife did physical education at Sydney Uni when, when she was at uni. She was doing teaching and, and that was one of the components she did. And one of the projects they did one weekend was they had to go to a football match to a rugby league match and all the class had a different player they just were given a different player and they had to basically track the whole game 
how many time they were spent running, walking, jogging, how oh, much wow. distance they covered. But they were doing it but manually, manually. <laughs> by watching the game and just seeing, oh, they ran for five seconds, they jogged for this long. And I know I was talking to my wife recently about one of the bits of stats we saw <laughs> on TV and she goes, oh, my gosh, I spent so many yeah. hours and hours and hours <laughs> compiling the information and now it's just available instantly to you. So Look, We used to do that with my amateur Aussie Rules Club in Sydney and uh, someone would have a clipboard and another person would be watching the game and just shouting out, you know, what was happening, uh, yep. kick to so-and-so, mark to so-and-so, da-da-da-da. And the person on the clipboard didn't get to look up all game. Yeah, right. <laughs> there <How>? you go. <laughs> so we progressed somewhat since Yes, we there. have, thankfully. And obviously with soccer, they talk about soccer being possibly the most physically demanding sport in the world to play because you just are on the mm. move so much of the game and so much of the time is spent sprinting rather than just moseying along and taking your, minding your own business as such. And so tracking that with players has been a very important part of it. So you can imagine... The professional soccer teams, the international soccer teams have been using that sort of tech for a long time. Manchester City have been quite advanced in some of the technology they've used. And the latest bit of tech that they've been using recently has been something that actually clips onto a player's boots. So not only can you track where they're going, how far they're running, how fast they're running with a GPS device on their back, you can also track exactly what's happening with their feet, including just the fine skills how much ability they have in their dribbling technique, for example, how fast they're actually moving their foot when they're kicking a ball. You can't pick up those with a GPS tracker on someone's back because you don't know what the feet are doing. You just know that the body is moving through the air. So with all of these skills, they're actually fine-tuning exactly what's happening with players and then comparing some of that data and saying... And just turning the whole game into a game of mathematics. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. And so then they can say, James, we've analysed your game versus Billy's game and we're actually finding that his dribbling skills are like this and here's the data from his can you make yours a bit more like that you can improve that game etc etc so professionals <laughs> that's fantastic but you're exactly right manchester city have said well we've got this tech and we're sure other clubs have got it as well so why don't we sell this tech with our stamp of approval on it so the company that's doing it all is player maker that's the company that's making these devices but because they've got this stamp of approval from manchester city you can imagine the soccer fans in the uk the manchester city soccer fans who are going I want the same tech as my heroes have got. I want to compare my stats. So you can imagine that as well. Let's compare how fast my foot moves when I kick a ball compared Mm. to one of my heroes or how my dribbling skills are. So all of these skills, all of these foot movements, just getting down to such a finite detail. Now, the thing that you said at the very beginning there that... When you laughed at me (laughs) and now you've laid down the challenge, I'm going to get scouted. I'm going to play first grade in some sport. I don't know that I laughed at you, did I? <laughs> Can we replay that? I wasn't sure it was a laugh. It was a It was, a, a it was supportive. It was completely, yes, James, you, you, you may become a professional sport. It was a supportive laugh. That's right. If there's such a thing, that was it. <laughs> so I'll go back and listen later and see what a supportive laugh sounds like. Yeah, right. But imagine if Player Maker compiled all this data and in some database somewhere, they had all this information. And then they went to Manchester City's coaching staff and said, we found a guy out in Australia. I don't know how old he is, but yeah. James Eddy seems to have these incredible dribbling skills <laughs> and incredible <laughs> foot speed. Why don't we sign him up as maybe a rookie and see what we can do? Because yeah. all that data there, surely they could identify some exceptional players based on this information and this data. So me as the average Joe Blow player, I might be wanting to look at this data and compare that to my heroes and see if I can improve it. But maybe it's a secret way for them to be scouting as well. Maybe we've blown it wide open now, James. There we go. Maybe (laughs) it's a whole different thing. But I I like the idea that they've got this ability to share the tech with 
kids, with players out there across the world that want to actually look at how the professional teams do it. But I wonder if if you'll um, feel like you've had a great game, you'll get back and look at your stats and go, oh, no, I had a terrible game. <laughs> yeah, that may be right. <laughs> The social media world is an entertaining place, but riddled with strife for young people. I don't have a big presence on Insta myself, but I understand that they at least check your age as part of your profile. Handy, but far from watertight security. In an effort to ensure that content is maintained as age-appropriate as possible, Insta has debuted some new age verification tools to de- determine whether or not you're over 18. Matt, do you see this as an effective measure for the purpose or is it just smoke and mirrors to make it look like they're trying? Uh, that's a good point. I actually think it is pretty effective and I do feel sorry for teenagers of today. I remember when friends of mine wanted to go and discover the world when they were under the age of 18, they'd go into a news agent and pick up whatever the porn magazines were to discover mm. what the world looked like and go and try and convince the news agent that they were in fact over 18. <laughs> Put on the voice. That's right. <laughs> this is for the boys at work. <laughs> and then see what they could learn from that. Now, obviously, you've got online pornography and that's really the issue here around the age of 18, why social media companies care that mm. people are 18 or older. And the other crucial age is 13 because most social media apps won't let you even be a part of it mm. until you're 13 years of age. Now, in the past, many people I know of, the age that comes up for them is not their real age because many years ago when they wanted to first get onto social media, they lied about their age. They might have been 10 or 11 years of age, Ah. put their age over 13, and now they're having a 21st birthday when they're only 19, for example. So that's been a bit of an issue in the past, but the crucial one, well, maybe that's just as crucial as well for people's mental health under the age of 13, but getting to the age of 18 and then being able to access some of that adult content. So it has been an issue. And governments around the world have been saying to social media organisations, you've got to do better with this. You have a responsibility. Sure, some people might lie about their age, but you've got to have ways of picking it up. Now, in the past, for example, Instagram has said in some of the information that's come forward out of government, they've said, right, we'll make it a bit tougher for you. You've got to upload your ID to prove that you're 18 or over. Now, that's easy for the 18. 13-year-old, not so much. You don't have a driver's license, usually Mm. at 13. But 18 or over, you can usually upload an ID. Now, some people then have said, oh, no, I worry about my ID being uploaded, so I don't want to upload my ID. So the next verification tool that Instagram have allowed you to do is three other adult users, verified adult users on Instagram, can vouch for you as being an adult and then they'll accept your date of birth as being at least 18 or over. But the latest way they're doing it, which I think is probably the cleverest way, is you can take a video selfie. You submit that video selfie and the AI that Instagram has set up can then predict your age with accuracy levels too if you're below now, the age. Now, here's the clincher because I this is what I was really sceptical about. But anyway, yeah. Below the age of 13 they can get the accuracy of your age within 1.36 years. So it means, sure, you might be 12 and you can convince the video selfie that you're 13. And then if you're 18, they can get it within 1.52 years. So once again, it might be 17 and you convince it with your video selfie that it's 18. But it's getting pretty close in terms of that. But the, the big thing here is when you've got a site, a tool that's got hundreds of millions of users, it's pretty hard to employ enough people to go through and manually check various things for Mm. people. So they need to have some sort of tool to at least give you 
a first indication whether that age might be completely out. So if you want to verify your age on Instagram, you want to say you're over 18, I want to be able to access some adult information, then some adult content, for example, then that video selfie is the way you'll do it to prove that. So I'm sure lots of people who are much younger than, say, 17 will try and do it, and the AI is good enough to pick up that you're not even close to 18, so you're going to be blocked out. Again, some people that are 17 might get through, and some people that are 18 and a half, it might get wrong by a year and a half, and they might say, sorry, you're only 17, Mm. but it's going to get pretty close and mainly weed out those ones that are extremely different to the age they're trying to say they are. Mm. It is interesting how we're going there, isn't it? And I don't know that I would be able to tell. I see kids, and I say kids in inverted commas these days, I see people under the age of 18, some of them look like they're 23 to me and some look like they're 12 years old. So I don't know how well I would go as a human to identify someone's age by talking to them, looking at them. And sometimes I I do go and visit schools and it might be a high school. So I know there are kids there that are ranging in age from typically 18 to 12. And I'll be talking to one and I'm loathe to guess what year they're in because I'm just always thinking, uh, am I going to get it completely wrong above or below? So I always start with what year are you in? But then when they say, oh, what do you think I'm in? That's always a tough question to come back with. So this may not um, be foolproof. There may be some some people that can get through, but it will certainly catch uh, a bulk of them is what we're saying. Yeah, that's right. And when you consider at the moment that some research out of the UK said that one in three children lies about their mm. age to access adult content, then if this gets it down to one in 20, one in 30, then it's made a big jump forward from where we are now. So again, in the past, you typed in a date of birth and the site accepted that and away you went. Why would you lie about your age putting it up? Of course <laughs> you wouldn't. No, no one would do that at all. <laughs> Reduce, reuse and recycle. It's a motto that we all need to use as a mantra. And no one should be off the hook. And in British Columbia in Canada, they're looking to soup up old diesel trains with big old hydrogen-powered zhuzhing. Matt, I quite like the idea. It's quite a bit of waste in an old diesel train, so I reckon a 21st century makeover kills two birds with one stone. What are the details on this? Can you just spell that word you said then, please? Yeah, it's got two J's in it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a noise. <laughs> it's onomatopoeia at yeah, its best. <laughs> it's, it's also got some of those um, non-numeric symbols in it as well. <laughs> some of them Elon Musk uses to name his children. So I like the word. I just want to go and look it up and see what it means. But I'm, I'm going to have trouble looking it up because I don't know how to spell it. Uh, so look, this is a good example. I actually think Canada's doing some good stuff around advancing their products. I know some people in Canada have told me that they bought an EV based on the fact that when you drive an EV in some of the larger cities, you don't get any tax concessions, you don't get any discounts, Mm. but you get to drive in the bus lane. So your commute time is reduced. Fairly simple thing to do. So this is another example where they've basically taken an old train, an old diesel train, and they've said, well, we want to start working out ways to go forward. And hydrogen may well be a part of that mix. And we've talked about it before. I think hydrogen for long-haul trucks, for example, hydrogen for ships probably, but hydrogen for trains is probably a way that we're going to go. Putting enough batteries on a train or a ship, for example, is going to be very difficult. Putting enough hydrogen on something like a train or a ship is going to be much easier. We've got a way to go to make sure we produce all our hydrogen in green methods, but hydrogen is a good way to go. So they're taking a very old locomotive, a very old diesel locomotive, and they're saying, you know what, let's see what we can do in turning this hydrogen in motion. So there's a firm called Hydrogen in Motion, H2M, and they're doing this conversion at the moment as we speak to really show off what can be done. 
And I think that's part of it. You need some organisations out there that are going to do this, show off the technology, really show where we're headed before mainstream, before taxi drivers of the world are going to say this is the way to we go We need forward. these pioneers to get the ball rolling. And, of course, other companies will develop that further and the technology gets developed even further. Yeah. The, the more people hold back and wait to see what someone else does, Correct. the, the slower this develops. Yeah. yeah, and there's some questions to be answered in this. There's a company in Germany that's done something similar. They've converted an old train using hydrogen. But one of the big things with hydrogen is storing it do you store that hydrogen at high pressure? Do you make it so cold that it's going to be a liquid? How you store that? Mm. And then I did talk to a car manufacturer recently that is using, they've got some hydrogen cars in Australia, but they said the tank, the fuel tank in that particular hydrogen car was one inch carbon fibre fuel tank to contain the hydrogen, both the small atoms so they don't escape, mm. but also the high pressure that it needed to be under to have enough to give you reasonable range. In something like a train, you've got a bit more space to store that hydrogen, yeah. so you probably don't need to have it under such high pressure. But all of these experiments are going on, and we will know what this look like, looks like, what this landscape looks like in years to come after all of these various companies have done the work, have done the testing, different companies around the world. But one of the great things now, compared to the days of the, the Edisons, for example, We've now got the ability to share information across the world instantly. Someone comes up with a new concept in Germany and someone in Canada can say, well, they've had that particular process, that works. We'll now build on top of that. So you can get this collaboration across the world. And that's, I suppose, where this particular company in Canada is going is they know what's happening in Germany. How can they make it better? How can they use this old train to actually give it a new lease of life but also show off what can be done with hydrogen? And I reckon that this lends itself to converting old steam trains yeah. to hydrogen. How cool. Because, of course, you're going to get all that, well, the, the water vapour coming out the top. Yep. You can have the choo-choo noise. You can have the <laughs> beep, beep whistle. Thomas the Tank Engine at your heart out. It's converted to hydrogen, completely green and gl- uh, green and clean. Yeah. And uh, let's do it, folks. Yeah, There's that would the be challenge. good. And I don't I don't know what pressure the boilers in an old steam train were under. But well, you can, all that inside stuff you can change. You can convert, convert that, surely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. But it's one of those things that I think it would look fantastic. Imagine the old steam train running along, but it's actually a hydrogen it's train. It's actually a hydrogen yeah, train. Yeah, I'm sure some enthusiasts out there at the moment are, are, are very angry with us, <laughs> but I think that would be pretty cool. So I think that'll be interesting as it goes forward, and we'll look out for more of this. I think it's a it's a really exciting time at the moment we've got a huge challenge and we've already heard that by 2030 we're likely to raise our temperature across the planet by one and a half degrees it's a drastic situation to be in we're just about to tick over eight billion people in this on this planet so there's some pretty big things happening but the exciting part about is every time there's a problem that presents an opportunity and i think that's what we've got at the moment james across the world we've got this endless opportunities and what we can do and even what we talk about here if we can educate a few people about some of those opportunities we're playing a little tiny minuscule part in that whole solution that we've got across the world catalyze a bit of change yeah Mm. anyway we're just gonna see what happens there and off in the distance i can hear the chiming bell for recess that's all we have time for today folks thanks for another excellent tech talk matt And I do say sorry to the taxi drivers out there. I will try and be kinder to you in the future, but please keep giving me all this wonderful information you give me. (laughs) (laughs) It will make good conversation. Now, listen, I need to make haste so I can finish my little lunch in time to get a good square for handball. And I've also got to meet a bloke who wants to trade footy cards before the bell. He's got near mint condition Tommy Redonigus that he'll swap for a Wayne Pierce and a dog-eared Rosquito. I'm James Eddy. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. It's a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson each week. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave leave warm, fuzzy comments. Please, please, please. See you again.